Hey guys, I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. All right, before we get started, I have a very exciting announcement. Uh, we will be hosting yet another live podcast at the end of this month. On January 29th at 6 p.m., we will again be at the wonderful Bell House in Brooklyn. And we know that the end of January is kind of the most depressing time of the year outside. So uh, we'll be talking about how wonderful it is to hold up inside in your sweatpants and cook, cook, and cook. Winter Comforts is the name of the game. We'll be joined by truly special guests, Stella Bugby, editor-in-chief of The Cut, and New Yorker columnist Gia Tolentino, uh, as well as Carla Lolly Music, Chris Morocco, Andy Bergani, Molly Boz, and Sola L. Whaley from the VA Test Kitchen. They'll all be appearing on stage along with myself and VA editors Priya Krishna and Alex Beggs. As always, there will be bites and a cash bar. And the link to read all of the details and buy tickets is in our podcast show notes. So a thank you to Target for making this event possible. We cannot wait. And now for this week's show. Up first, associate editor Christina Che is chatting with Sonoko Sakai, cookbook author and soba noodle maker, whose new book, Japanese Home Cooking, the BA staff cannot get enough of. After that, Brad Leone is on talking with me about an often overlooked category of the produce aisle that he loves deeply and truly, root vegetables. And finally, after a short hiatus over the holiday break, it's back to Cook, Mary Kill with Alex Beggs. All right, here we go. Hi, Sunoko. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, hello, Christina. Thank you for inviting me. So we just spent the last hour or so watching you make these incredible soba noodles um, that you've become known for. And I feel like I just, I'm like still coming down from it. There were there was so much energy and I feel like people were just so engrossed in watching you. And thank you. One thing that really surprised me, I mean, so many things surprised me. Mm -hmm. I feel like I just, I could go on for days about all the technique that I feel like we learned. But one thing that struck me so much was when you were talking about the relationship or the similarities between soba making and pottery. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to talk about without a visual, but I was wondering if you could sort of summarize you know, what you were saying earlier. Yes. Well, basically, uh, pottery is um, clay and water, right? Or, or the, the way you make clay is with mud mud and water. And a dough is, is very similar because it's ground groats or ground buckwheat groats with um, water. And it's just mixing that together to make this um, dough. Uh, and then kneading it out into flour and there's just certain folds that are traditionally very similar to making pottery. I've never really done pottery myself, but I am so tempted. Like, I think my next phase in life might actually be doing a pottery class. But <laughs> right now, I'm, like, focused on, on just get it becoming trying to become a, a better noodle maker or soba maker. So one thing at a time. But the, every time I run into a potter, they go, oh, my God, I could do that fold. I mean, one thing that I noticed, too, was that so much of it was like muscle memory for you. Yeah. I feel like we were watching you roll out the dough and you were looking at the thickness of the sheet and you were cutting it and, and tapping your knife against it. And all of that was was done through through memory. 
Yes, I mean, I've been at it for about 10 years now. And first, I was just basically an, a soba slurper, right? I just loved soba. I come from the Kanto region where we eat a lot of soba noodles. Uh, noodles could be very regional in Japan, and some people prefer uh, udon over soba. But so when I really had this, you know, I, I became very uh, homesick about my soba noodles, and I could not compromise just eating uh, dried noodles, which is what you mostly get here, or machine-made noodles, and it's mostly wheat. So I started taking classes in Japan, and then I did a little bit of an estage with the soba master, and I kind of worked my way through this um, exercise of learning how to use my muscles. <laughs> so jumping back a bit, you've grown up living in a lot of different places around the world, right? Yes. Uh -huh. I was actually born here in New York. Oh, you were? Yes. Queens. Whereabouts? Oh. Queens. Yeah, my name, Sonoko, actually is garden child because it's Kew Gardens. Oh, wow. And I'm the first American-born child. Of your siblings? Yes, uh -huh, of five. Uh, and which one are you? I'm the number two. And so where else Where else did you grow up? Well, it's uh, New York, then Tokyo, Tokyo to San Francisco, San Francisco, Mexico City, Mexico City, back to uh, Japan, Tokyo, and Kamakura is another city outside of Tokyo, and then to uh, Los Angeles. And were you eating, I mean, did you have access to the foods that you wanted to be eating all that time? Like, were you able to eat soba when you were? Not all the time. <laughs> I think it was more udon, more wheat-based noodles. And soba is something that I actually acquired a taste for when I was, when I moved back to Japan after Mexico. So that, I was probably about eight or nine years old. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother loved soba, so she would take me to a soba place. She didn't make her soba. I oh, mean, ever? Never made soba. I had never seen her make soba. She was a baker, actually. She baked bread, uh -huh. and we stomped on That's the dough unusual. with our feet. Yeah, my grandmother uh, is very kind of westernized. She was brought, had a very western upbringing. Went to Catholic schools, and so she could. She baked cakes and you know breads for church. And I, I really got my uh, hands in flour through her bake, bake, baked goods. Right, and, and I guess when when I say unusual, I mean it feels unusual for a culture where you know, baked goods, baked in an oven feels... Yeah. No, we were the... My grandmother was the only person who had an oven. So everybody in town in her come. Like in her town? Yes. And people would come and, and they... And also butter was very unusual. So to have butter accessible, my grandmother, you know, baked these cakes with butter. So yeah, people would smell something very different. And this is back in the 60s. So... And was it a luxury... And was butter considered like a luxury item? Yeah. Well, after the war butter became more accessible. But when my mother first moved to the United States, to New York, she just was so impressed that she could actually afford to buy butter, right? And milk. And But it's so funny because they're sort of my grandma, mother, they made all these traditional foods and modern foods. But I became more traditional, even though I've spent most of my life overseas. Right, right. You were sort of Western-born. Yes, part Mexican, <laughs> part American, part Japanese. But it feels like, and and I can feel this when I, when I read through your book. It really feels like you were drawn to something about you know, your ancestral roots and and mm -hmm. that style yeah. of of cooking. Yeah, it was almost like a, an awakening for me when I moved back from Mexico to Japan. That's at the age of eight or nine. Mexico was also an awakening culturally because it was still a culture of handicrafts, right? People still made a right, lot of right, things right. by hand. But when I went back to Japan, that that 
interest, curiosity in me heightened because we lived in Kamakura in a place where there's many, uh, it's the city of where Zen Buddhism flourished. So lots of temples and shrines and where there are lots of temples and shrines, there's lots of artisans who make the tofu. There's good tea there. There's tea ceremonies. Um, the ocean was very close. The sea was close. So we got fresh seafood and a lot of noodle places. So this is something that, you know, going to school, or I would pass by these artisan shops and peek in, and there would be somebody making something by hand. And that's what I mean by a cultural awakening. And it stayed with me. So when you started to develop a deeper interest in making soba noodles, were you also at the same time developing an interest in the broader subject of Japanese home cooking, or was it sort of one following the other? Actually, I had written a book 30 years ago, 34 oh, years right, ago. Which I was, I was actually shocked to learn that that existed, I, you know, when I was doing yes, my research. Yes, it was and, called The Poetical Pursuit of Food. Which I love. Yes, and uh, Japanese recipes for American cooks. So I've always been interested in Japanese home cooking, and I wanted to find my voice in English. So that was the first book I wrote when I was still in my... I started in my late 20s. I had an Olivetti typewriter that was missing several keys, but I typed it manually. <laughs> and um, I'm still very proud of this book. It has absolutely no pictures, a few illustrations. It's very esoteric, but with lots of recipes. And I, I think the principles still stand today. And that's, un that's under your maiden name, right? Yes. My For maiden name is to go and Sonoko Kondo. Now I'm Sonoko Sakai. Actually, my Christian name is Marie. I was Marie Kondo. What? <laughs> I'm the original Marie Kondo. If you didn't know, <sighs> if you look at my birth certificate from Kew Gardens Hospital, it's Marie Sonoko Kondo. That, so I grew up as Marie. Everybody up to high school called me Marie Kondo. That is amazing. Do you keep in touch with anyone from high school? Of course. Well, she's my elementary school. Oh, you know, right, yeah, right. But I have, yes. Do they find it funny? Yeah, they call me Marie and... Even my husband said, somebody wrote a cookbook <laughs> with the same name. That's not a cookbook, the organizing book. Your and alter ego. Yes, my alter ego completely like beat you. She's selling millions of copies, and I'm going, what? It's I've met her in this office. Oh, my God. She's, I feel that she's about half as tall as you. She is the smallest person I've ever seen. Really? Yes. Oh, she's I like know. A she's, doll. And she has like this, the, the most porcelain-like beautiful skin <laughs> and the way I think about you know my way of organizing is like chaos in organized chaos people call me I eventually get to things and I <laughs> like my grandmother I don't want to throw everything away you know p things give me joy later in life so right you know like my pots and pans or old things actually start to take on a different value investment in investment joy yeah or, I don't know but it's kind of funny that I'm a I'm Marie Kondo <laughs> that's hilarious yeah um, so, yes, to, to speak to your first cookbook, I was really surprised to learn that that existed already because this came out, what, 30 some years ago? 35 years ago. And, I mean, that's older than I've been alive by a few years. Yeah. But sometimes I, I've noticed, um, I'm trying to think, I was at a used cookbook store in Biddeford in Maine. Mm-hmm a couple of years ago and I was looking through all the different sections and they had it organized by different regional cuisines and global cuisines and the Asian cookbook section was very small and uh, I'm Korean mm -hmm. um, and so I was really surprised to find that it was really hard to find cookbooks written for American cooks by people of Asian descent Right. and 
And I just thought that was very interesting. So I was like, a think, I think a little bit ahead of my time. And I was still, you know, when I was writing it, I was a graduate student at UCLA. And um, not well, studying, not, not studying, studying cu- cu- yeah, I don't do, I wasn't in culinary, I was in film. And um, my professor that I was working for said, you know, you, you have a story to tell, you have a voice, right, you know, find your voice in cooking, you're a good cook. So he kind of guided me and I put this book together. Tell me about that book and how it compares to the, mm-hmm. the new book, which right. is actually, it's much more straightforward title, Japanese Home Cooking. Yeah. But it feels like the spirits of the two the, I think the poetical similar. pursuit is the same because I think, um, as I said earlier, you know, I had this cultural awakening and it was poetry. You know, everybody that worked with their hands, including like the rice miller, had so much respect. You know, mm-hmm. he revered his rice. And he wrote a haiku on the chalkboard every morning, and I would read it. And that's how I learned Japanese, right? And um, so I wanted to capture that moment in my life. But I still feel that 30-some years later, I still have that every day. You know, you just have to look at life a little closer, right? And right. capture that decisive moment when you find things that are po- poetical, especially in cooking or you know, when you're working in the garden. And so I feel that um, I have evolved as a person. I'm older. I'm my grandma's age. Mm-hmm. I have two grandchildren. I mean, you know, I have wrinkles. I can't <laughs> deny that. But, you know, it's like you, you, the experience has really, of just being in the kitchen and cooking for my family and friends have made me uh, a richer person. So I, I ask myself, how dare you wrote that, that book, cookbook when you were like in your you know, 20s, right? <laughs> like, but, you know, back then I had a different kind of passion. So. I mean, and I feel like the most notable difference, of course, is that you hadn't even begun your, your soba journey. Oh, no, that, no, I was using out. dried noodles. <laughs> and udon, my, my, yeah, my brother got into noodle making uh, udon. So we would, we would do that. But it was more about cakes. And, you know, my sister ended up being a pastry chef. She studied in France and Belgium. Oh, She's wow. the one who took it seriously. And I was just like, I, I deviated and went into something else in film. But you know, it's the more I pursued cooking, especially Japanese cooking, I wanted to get to the ingredient. And then I wanted to get into handling the in- ingredient with respect. That has always been something that is that struck me about Japanese culture mm-hmm. and especially the artisan culture where you can have you know, the name of your tofu maker and you have someone who's dedicated their whole life to the pursuit of perfection in, you know, Tamago or, (laughs) uh, you know, which of course was made very famous by, um, I forget his name. He's, uh, the guy who cooked the Tamago for Jiro in Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Basically there's like this sub narrative in Jiro Dreams of Sushi where Uh the guy, the guy spends 10 years yeah, he must be the guy in Tsukiji. I mean, there are people like that who d- do nothing but just the tamago yaki, right? right? So that particular person was probably featured. But I have to say that there are many artisans like that that spend all their life doing just one thing, the one thing really well. Right. That feels like something that is uniquely Japanese. I don't know. And and it's like generational, right? It just doesn't s- s- end at one in one you know, it's not just one person doing it, but it gets transferred to the next generation. And now they're sort of losing that art because mm-hmm. nobody wants to do things that are so labor intensive or takes a lot of training. So I feel like the culture is 
is lost. The traditions are, 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 are lost. But as a home cook, I said, well, what can I do to preserve my culinary culture? I'm not trying to become like a shokunin. That's the word for artisan. That's mm -hmm. what they do for a living. I'm a home cook. I'm a cooking teacher. I like to do it on a level that is accessible to people. So you're not in the you're not in the business of becoming a quote unquote soba master. Oh, I'll never be a soba <laughs> master. I'm a soba maker. I'm a cook. One thing I I was wondering too is, with a title like master, you know, I feel like there's like a udon master or yeah. soba master. Is that something that actually comes with a specific certification process, or you know, it's just how do people become recognized as master? Well, there's status? no no word as master in Japan. Or you could say sensei or, or you know, a teacher. Mm -hmm. But shokunin is, is someone who works with his hands. And if somebody says, I'm a shokunin, you have to prove it, right? You have to go and see his work. Right. And it, this, the work will speak for itself. You're not going to go out and tell, tell people, hey, call me a master. <laughs> that, that's not the way it works. It's the practice. And it has to show. And... Um, the reason why I, I say that I'm a soba maker is because it's not something I do every single day in volumes. That's what a real soba master does. Mm -hmm. And and he gets his respect if his soba is really good. There's also a lot of mediocre soba out there, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, this is, again, you know, a pursuit of perfection could be one word. I don't know if perfection is, a, is, a, is what people pursue because I don't think there's such thing as perfection, but... Right. I feel like it's perhaps just a pursuit of something a little bit better every yeah, day? Yeah, right, A right. little bit better over yeah. time. Yeah, and I think it's very important to have that humble spirit, the beginner's spirit, and we call it chushing. You always have to get back to this um, beginner's spirit, and that's how I approach my soba making. I'm, and it feels like a quality that you, you have to have if you're going to be doing, you know, mo you're, you're going through the same motions of doing something you've done hundreds of times before. Yeah every day and approaching it as if it's the first time yeah there's like something very there is something very poetical about that yeah and it's uh it's different every day the weather could be different oh you, right you, you feel you might feel a little different and you were noticing i mean you were noticing just now that the yeah. the air quality in the building here is super yeah. dry right um, so i i know that the soba is going to react to that and if i don't pay attention it's going to turn into like a very dry uh, you know, fragile soba. So it, it does require that you focus. Okay, so this brings me to your your new book, which just came out, um, called Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors. Um, I was very excited to get this book. Thank you. And so, of course, this does include instructions for how to make soba noodles at home, but it also has a ton of other recipes that you might find in it in a typical Japanese kitchen and mm -hmm. you know there were things I feel like I recognized the Japanese curry of course or yakisoba or you know so many other things the nabes the hot pots and um, I just wanted to know about what your inspiration was for how you decided to publish this collection of recipes mm -hmm. well I always wanted to do a sequel to the first one and it's taken me, you know, over 30 years to do it. But And you wrote a book in between, right? Oh, a little one. A little gifty book <laughs> called oni, Rice Crab. An oni onigiri, onigiri book. Yeah, that's just because I needed to break into this market, you know, because I, I went into film for 30 years. I was buying movies. Right. So, But it's it's very similar in that you're sourcing good ingredients. And 
making something out of it. But anyway. So you you kind of see this as the follow-up to your, your first book. Yes, it is. And it's basically standing on the same fundamentals. But, you know, I introduce ideas about gogyosetsu, uh, which is wuxing in Chinese, and it's about the five principles that we practice as a cook. And it, whether it's your five senses or five colors or five techniques, we like to wrap things up nicely in fives. Mm-hmm. And or you go to a temple and you see or a shrine and you see the five grains. It's not just rice that's revered. It's it's millet, rice, barley, and soybean beans included and buckwheat. Let's see, and and we think of balance or harmony when you have a variety of ingredients that come together. Mm-hmm. And if you just do one thing, it's not going to work. If you just grow rice, you know you you deplete the n- nutrients from the soil. So. I think you have to look at cooking the same way. I'm always looking about color balance. I'm looking about flavor balance. No single flavor should stand out too much. These are all things that I learned through experience. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes like we do, like garnishes, you can't overwhelm your plate with a lot of herbs and flowers. We tend to do that here in the West, I think. Right. But they all... Big smattering oh of my gosh, chopped you know, parsley and cilantro over everything. Or <laughs> no, but I, they all have these roles in Japan. And they have some some like uh, sliced, like grated ginger or grated radish on the side of soba noodles. Mm-hmm. That aids in digestion. You're not going to serve a whole cup of that. Or mm-hmm. wasabi is served with fish, right? You know, it clears the toxins and h- helps in digestion. They have medicinal roles. Right. So you have to understand how much of it to put. You never want to overwhelm it. But some people just want a lot of ginger, you know. <laughs> it goes, can I have another ginger? And you see these sushi bars with tons of ginger. And it's How kind does of that make you feel? appalling, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, so through my experience, I learned more about balance and harmony. And I, I don't think I had, I, I touch on it in my first book, but I went deeper in this book. So the book is interesting to me because it's divided into two parts mm-hmm. and the first part like the first half of the book mm-hmm. is largely dedicated to talking about the pantry mm-hmm. uh, and all the ingredients that comprise it. Yeah. I wanted people to understand the pantry because if you don't understand it, you could go to a Japanese market and be lost. Mm-hmm. It's I, too I foreign. I certainly feel that way. Like if I, I go, go to, to a it. Korean, let's say, market and I can't read the, you know, the language, then how am I going to find anything? And, but if I could recognize some of the things or mm-hmm. tasted miso or soy sauce, there's different kinds of soy sauce. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to try to describe it, try to explain as much as I can. So people don't feel intimidated by Japanese seasonings. And when you really look at it, it's, there's only like five seasonings. Again, there's five. And what are they? Well, there's salt, of course. That's universal. Shio. Shio. And there's uh, miso, soy sauce, mirin, or sake. They're both sakes. And there's um, vinegar. And they're all basically, except with the exception of salt, they're all fermented seasonings made with rice. So if you know those five, then you could cook Japanese food. Right. I remember that always, that, that surprised me when I was first starting to get into learning how to make dashi and, Mm -hmm. you know, making basic seasonings and stuff. I was like, everything I make has the same things in it. I know, it's really... variations on the same thing. I know, I mean, I think uh, other Asian cuisines are 
more complex when it comes to spices. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have togarashi, which is a chili pepper and wasabi but, and ginger. <laughs> but, you know, no cardamom, no turmeric. Right. It, the, the curry is a different animal, right? It just it, it, it came through. It's from India through uh, the British. But and, and yes, Japanese cuisine has become very modern and westernized on many levels. And I touch upon that in the second part of the book. But the first part of the book, I said I have to introduce get people to understand the fundamentals. And once you understand like how the dashi is put together, so simple. Mm-hmm. Don't buy the dashi powder. Just all you have to do is soak the seaweed or do a, you know, uh, you could do a cold brew with shiitake mushrooms and you have a broth that can be the foundation for your miso soup. Mm-hmm. And then you build on it. So I wanted people to take that pantry section and build, comfortably build, you know, one block at a time. And, when people are shopping for these things, you know, yeah. I mean, if I were to go out and look for, I mean, basic things, soy sauce or sesame oil or, you know, whatever, what would your advice be in terms of buying those things in terms of, the, I, I suppose, the quality level, which I only ask because I, I've been fortunate enough to taste different grades of mm-hmm. these products over the course of my life. And I've really been blown away by the difference between, you know, like a like a Kikoman soy sauce and you know, some soy sauce that Nancy Singleton Hachisu brought in, hmm. like, okay. to yeah. the kitchen. Right. Well, um, so you have the industrial soy sauce that, you know, is produced very quickly and no time for fermentation. They mm-hmm. use some kind of a base and they do it in less than a month or, you know, a couple months versus the whole whole bean soy sauce that takes a long time to ferment, mm-hmm. like, you know, at least a year. And, and the umami level is completely different. It's and crazy. And the intensity of the salt is different, right? Um, vinegar, same with the vinegar. A lot of the vinegars are using a base. It's like ice cream. If you use an ice cream base, the ice cream doesn't taste good. Right. But a lot of them use that, right? Because it's easier. It's cheaper. It yields more. It's like the feeling of eating something that doesn't quite leave you satisfied in the end. Yeah, it's It true. doesn't sate your palate. No. And um, unfortunately, most of the industrial soy sauces just are, are, are not. Don't, don't cut it. Don't cut it for me. <laughs> but even like Kikoman and Yamasa, they have whole beans. They have organic. They're actually seeing the demand of the consumers. And they're making a higher grade soy sauce because they're the ones that started the soy sauce. So it's important for them to, to keep their customers. So I see higher grade soy sauce. Which is, I mean, which is great because I think the consumers are, are learning from people like you who are writing these yeah. really great resources right. for people to, right. to learn. Sure. Um, and certainly I know that I have learned a lot from, from reading this book. Okay, I just have one last question, which is more of a personal one. But please tell me there is a soba restaurant in the cards for you. And if so, can I come? <laughs> well, um, I just did a pop-up. And I made 120 servings for a restaurant in Venice, California, uh-huh. uh, called Mountain. And I managed, and I felt oh, so Travis's good. Oh, place. Yeah, I felt so good. I felt like I, you know, uh, at, I don't want to tell you how old I am, but um, <laughs> um, I, you know, I have two grandchildren. So, but I, 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 am, I have an amazing amount of energy. So if there's an opportunity to have a little soba shop, why not, right? But I haven't, you know, the thing is, for me, it's about quality of the ingredients. You grow the buckwheat here. If the buckwheat is properly milled and served fresh, you know, as a noodle, then there's, of course, a a way to do it. 
if there's a will, there's a way. So and you know what they say about restaurants, organized chaos. Organized chaos. I'm really good at that. <laughs> but if there is one, you're you're my first guest. How's that? I can't wait. Thank you so much, Sinoko. Thank you so much, Christina. Brad Leone, the listeners have been demanding this podcast. <laughs> wait, seriously? No. <laughs> oh, I got excited for a second. I've been excited. You, well, yeah. So this started uh, a couple of weeks ago in the test kitchen. We were talking about turnips, <laughs> you and I, and I've never seen you glow as much as when talking oh, about yeah. turnips. Well, I thought they were going to fire me when we did the uh, uh, the making perfect Thanksgiving and people were throwing around sides ideas and we were talking, we landed on mashed potatoes and I was like, Oh, you know what I really like is when you mix in mashed turnips with the potatoes or just do them on the side too. I grew up, we do a little uh, mashed turnip. Okay. And it's delightful. So how, how was that suggestion received? Not, not well. (laughs) I mean, people were close to throwing things at me. Uh, Brad, get out of the kitchen. It was just a straight no. Yeah. We're going to have someone else on. Can I, uh, all right. Full disclosure. I have eaten turnips. Uh-huh. I think I've liked them before. I, and I have some thoughts about how to, pre- obviously you have thoughts about how to prepare them and I have some feedback. I, I'm not sure I've ever bought a turnip. Well, you know, there's a few different types. And I think if someone's, I mean, when most people think of turnips, I think they either, they think of two things. One is like the big, you know, uh, medieval time looking turnip. You know, it's just a monster white with the purple top kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yep, yep. Um it just seems like peasant food, yeah. if for lack of better description. And I mean that in a great way. Most good things yeah. were at some point. Or it's where comfort food comes from. Yeah. Um, and then the other one I think that most people, especially nowadays, uh, at least in the United States, is the Japanese, that little real tight, crispy white one. I, mm-hmm. I butcher how to say the correct name. It's like it starts with an H. I'm literally the worst. I should have brought notes. I'm just going to leave you out. I'm going to leave you hanging on that one. <laughs> it's fine. I'm going to roll with it. But that one, the Japanese turnip, it's fantastic it's almost like it's the it's so easy to prepare you don't really need to do much with it and well let's so let's do this we're going to run through your top five right, uh, root like vegetables this. and as with turnips give us like three ways to best prepare a before turnip. we go any yeah. further we talked about this offline a little bit but is a radish no we're not doing radishes okay. Okay. no Starting with turnips, give me three ways I should be cooking with turnips all right well depending on the turnip but we'll just do it on a broad way like a traditional big white mm-hmm. regular turnip. Yep. I mean, it's really good. I, it's boiled. You can kind of cook it like a potato. Boil, cook it or roast it. However, any you just need to get it tender. Like okay. that one, you don't. I don't really like el dente. You want mm-hmm. it to. I, that's why I love to almost mash it because it just takes really well to it. You can add some olive oil. You can add some pork fat. You can add uh, you know some butter, obviously some obviously, salt. Yeah, and it's wonderful. But you're not necessarily doing like the whole cream or milk thing like you do with mashed potatoes. No, it's not really yeah. my thing. Yeah, I, I uh, but it would, but it would certainly work. And then jumping to the name I can't remember, but that Japanese. It's almost like you would think Emma might be helping us out instead of just scrolling through Instagram right now. Uh Uh-oh, she just LOL'd. No, but seriously, Emma, help us out. Yeah, but seriously, Emma. So those ones are super versatile. Um, You can cook them real, you know, just a little salt steamed or slice them, quarter them, sauteed with a little olive oil or or butter. They can, you don't need to go mush. In fact, I don't don't like to. I'll eat them raw. I bet, right. I bet you would. You know, but just heat, heat it up a little bit, cooked al dente where the uh, the outside gets like, you know, soft and a little creamy on the texture, but the but the inside still got a nice little, little bite. Uh, yeah, a little bite to it. And they're just, they're just delightful to eat there. You know, 
as a side, I could, you know, you could put them in a, in a salad, but really I just like steaming them. I don't really like to put color on them. I don't like, I don't oh, want to. Interesting. Co- Cause I look at a lot of recipes. People will sort of like saute them, get them a little caramelized on the outside, but you don't, you know, you're not digging that personal preference. Like for yeah. me, like I, I just enjoy the root vegetable so much, honestly, steamed with a little salt. It's yeah. like, it's a delight. It's such a perfect vegetable. And I mean, listen, roasting it with miso or something like that. I mean, it's, it's good. It's very yeah. good. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure most people might prefer that. But me, when it comes to just high-end ingredients, I, I just like to let them speak for themselves. What about um, whether Japanese style in a broth or like a pot au feu or something, putting them in a soup sort of broth situation? It'd be great. It would be awesome in a broth. I've, yeah. I've definitely used it as like a, a topping in, say, ramen or mm-hmm. a soup or something, you know, mm-hmm. where they can even just kind of warm up in the broth. Yeah. Um, but steamed, it's there. They just get creamy, and they have like a, mm. such a unique texture that is just fantastic. Before we move on, how would you describe the, fl- the flavor profile of a turnip, mm. in your words? Sweet. I don't want to say starchy because they're because it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but like it almost starts to dance with like like a radish. You yeah. know, it's like a creamy radish. Dance with the radish. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Yum. I actually I, I want I want some and don't forget oh, yeah the greens. Fantastic. You can yeah. steam them. You can chop them up, saute them. And oftentimes when you have the Japanese style hakure. They come with it. Yes. They have that little, like, there's always a little bit of the, 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 the root, the green root on there, the, the, the tip. Or even more so, you usually see them with the full, the full green. Sure. I see them more with the full green than trimmed. And that's nice because you know they're fresh. Same oh, with- but I'm saying when you're serving them, they often always. have the greens cut up. But you always have a little bit of the Oh, the, yeah. The, that the little green, green you know, yeah. half inch nub. Yeah. And that's nice. And it's delightful. All right. What do we got next, Brad? Sweet potatoes. All, all types of sweet potatoes. Good for you. I love them. I grew up on them. You know, from the traditional yam to the, you know, there's there's so many different types, more than I even really can bring to the table. But, you know, they have the purple ones, yep. the white ones, the golden yellow ones, you know. The- I got to say this. I'm, I'm only now coming around to sweet potatoes. Oh, they're so good. And they're so good for you. I, yeah, because I, I always... Well, talk to me because I have thoughts and I have thoughts about why sort of growing up in the 70s and 80s, why I didn't, why I had a bad sort of impression of sweet potatoes. Did your mom like cook them in the microwave or something? My mom never made it, but you know, just like the mashed sweet potatoes and the ones with the marshmallow, it's just like oh, too sweet and just like, so how do you like to prepare a sweet potato at home? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm back to being boring in a way, you know, but like sweet potatoes, awesome roasted Uh to the point where it usually takes a little longer. I like to wrap them in foil with a little bit of water. Huh. Okay. Why? So it, it, sometimes it just wants a little bit of that steam. The steam penetrates it. It gives you a creamier finish. All right. Um, and then eventually I'll let that go for a little bit and then I'll open it, let the water evaporate. Yeah. And then uh, it'll start to caramelize again because they have they do caramelize oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh. Like a, a perfectly roasted whole sweet potato where the skin you can kind of just peel off yeah. and then the insides caramelized. It's like nature's candy it's unbelievable a little bit of butter (laughs) so so the other day simone and i were having like a healthy-ish monday night dinner bought a couple of nice sweet potatoes i just did like we do roast potatoes like pierce them with the fork rub them with olive oil malt and salt on the outside yep roasted them on the rack although you got to be careful you got to put something under the rack because you will get that like sugar water sugar water like that syrup coming out and that'll like just that's not a good situation on the bottom of your oven but i got them nice and crispy tender in the inside just split them open and just butter and sea salt and it's, it's all so it good it's so good and also so we, we we made that and i had some sauteed kale with garlic like i said it was healthiest night 
but not only was the sweet potato so satisfying, also so fulfilling slash filling. Oh yeah, like I was like I'm good. Like, oh, I yeah. don't need anything else. Sticks to the ribs yeah, is my very uh, much as so. my mom would say. How about like steaming or again putting them in some steaming, sort of they, soup situation? Fantastic soups. I I love. The problem is timing with soups mm. because they will turn in. They'll disintegrate. See, I've had that problem before. So like it's it's a it's a timing thing. You got to get your chunk right. Keep an eye on it. Uh, it's it's a t- you know because I like when they're like. Just perfect, you yeah. know, in the soup. It's it's fantastic. But if it falls apart, you kind of lose it. It starts to take over the broth. Um, I see. All right, so I did a Asian sort of Thai curry sort of thing the other night, and I made that mistake mm. where I put them in too early, and by the time everything else was cooked through, mushat, mush, yeah, yeah. Are there types of sweet potatoes you would opt for steaming over or brothing over roasting? You know, like. I think, they, no, I think they all work. Yeah. I think they all can all. It just comes down to that kind of flavor you're chasing, like and the texture. You know, I know the purple ones are sometimes a little more starchy, a little denser. Um, but so maybe that would work a little better as as far as holding together yeah. in a soup or a stew. But then also a great. I do this on weekdays because sometimes you know you just want something a little faster. I'll half it and then I'll cut it into like you know mixed shapes, little yeah. ob, odd shapes. Toss them with olive oil, where, salt. Were you going to say oblong? Uh, I don't think so. I just speak poorly. <laughs> and then on a sheet tray, in yeah. the oven. Uh, peeled you, or not peeled? I don't peel them. Okay. All right. But you can. And toss them in olive oil and toss salt? Toss them in olive oil, salt. So they get some color. Get some coated. Yeah. And just put them on the sheet tray, you know, um, cut sides. You know, yeah. you want to get contact yeah. on the sheet. And they'll pick up that one face on the sheet tray, picks up like that beautiful kind of, I don't want to say crispy, but like caramelized. Yeah, kinda. because they've got so much sugar yep. in them. And uh, and then everything else just stays nice and creamy, and they're done. As opposed to roasting it whole, which can you know take some time. It takes a while. I mean, you're talking thirty minutes, maybe even depending on the temperature. So we have this recipe on our healthiest website right now um, by your colleague and good friend Andy Barragani. Oh, Golden Boy himself. Wildly popular recipe that we put put up a few months ago: charred sweet potatoes with hot honey butter and lime. Did yeah, you ever, home did run. You taste this one when Andy was developing it. Fantastic. And that you sort of you split lengthwise, and then you've got and it's like some. But how did you make this one? You got the hot sauce, you got the butter, you got the lime, so it gets that sort of caramely crispness on the outside, and then you've got some pepitas and everything on there, and again, it just looks amazing. And everyone I know on staff who has made this, it- like you said before, they are so satisfying and fulfilling in a way that you can. I mean, listen, we're all. I, I'm speaking for myself, I guess, but like. I'm always drawn, maybe it's because of how it was brought up, or like we don't usually or very often just have a straight vegetarian meal. Yeah. It's like I'll make a sweet potato, but like, oh, I want like like chicken, or like, you know, I, I, maybe it's just a habit, but like you're always kind of used to having like a, a main course or a protein with it. Mm-hmm. But with sweet potatoes, you know, like that dish you were just talking about with, with Andy there. That little bowl, not to be Mr. Starch here, but a little bowl of rice or something. Oh, I mean, I nice. can call that dinner. Yeah, simple. no problem. Yeah, so maybe some little chart. put an egg on it. I would do a bowl of rice. Maybe also on. I would do a, a nice bowl of white rice and also some like uh, chopped up little scallions. Beautiful. So you, so you got a little bite. You got the lime. You got the honey. You got the hot sauce. You got the pepitas. An egg would not be terrible. Well, an egg's never terrible. No. All right, Brad. Number three. Um, what percentage of our listeners do you think cook with rutabaga? Oh, percentage? Yeah. Not good. Not, not, not good. We're, I, think, I don't even think we're in the single digits. It's probably a half a percent. But maybe not. Let's, you know what? I'm going to go out there. Maybe we'll do a little poll. We'll get old Rachel Carton to do a poll on the, on the social medias. But I, I would say 3%. 
Okay, so why should why should more BA listeners and users and readers be cooking with rutabaga? Actually, hold on. Before let me before I answer that question, I uh, I am reassessing my my guess. Magazine, you know, I think we have some. You know, my folks have been subscribe you know subscribers for a long time. I know we have a lot of you know uh, what's the p- nice way to say this older generations of, yeah. of viewers I'll, and readers. I'll, I'll take that, sure. Um, and I do believe some of our older. Uh, readers or fans, or <laughs> I, they probably watch it. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna say six and a half percent. Final answer. Okay. So wh- what should what should ex- describe rutabaga for those who are not uh, cooking with them, and, and what what should I like about them? Because and by the way, there are so few, if any, rutabaga recipes at all on bonappetit.com. I'm looking now. Like there's oh, yeah. other root Those vegetables recipes, recipes and they, this might pop up in them. But in terms of recipes that actually have rutabaga in the title it's i'm telling you it's gonna it, come back after this podcast all right you watch all right. restaurants all across the world but no I, I, those recipes probably died in like the 1800s or something you need, <laughs> you need an old book you know this was like great depression vegetables but it's kind of i mean it's it almost looks from the outside i feel like it can be confused with just that traditional big turnip because mm-hmm. it kind of has that like white kind of purpley skin on the outside. Yep. It's massive, but on the inside, it's uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like yellow. Yeah, it has a very beautiful golden hue. Oh, it's good. I'm excited. That, that when mashed, that. it really takes on some a beautiful beauty. But it's, yeah, on the outside, it's that part purple, part white sort of deal. The way I would do it was is I've only I would I'm going to start fooling around with it more and experimenting. Actually, I've been inspired, but um. I've only ever had it as a mash, I think. Yeah. And it's just, it's it's so, yeah, it's almost like a mix between like that big regular turnip and the Japanese, okay. you know? Like yeah. it has, and it's almost like squashy in a way, yeah. like, like an acorn squash mm-hmm. in a way, because it has like texture. It's not just mush. It's yeah. got like- Some fiber. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And- uh yeah, with that, with salt and or and butter, or a little olive oil, it's just I just really like it, and I think it's really, really underutilized. Well, I mean, it's interesting now that I think about it. Like, <clears throat> I think the average shopper who is not well versed in root vegetables, and obviously certain shoppers of who cook more of certain cuisines are, but if someone who isn't, it's like you already know how to cook a potato, right? You're not what you're dealing with is not that different. So whether you're getting a turnip or a rutabaga, like, same basic game plan. And, like, there's no reason to not, hey, mess around. Like, try mashing. Try roasting. starchy vegetable. Yeah. some salt and olive oil, and you're you're probably going to be all right. Or a little butter. Yeah. And it's like, look it up online and start playing with it. All right, rutabaga. This next one, um, big fan. The French are big fans of it, certainly. Uh, Definitely was, like, a thing back in the 90s. Celery root. Yeah. I mean, not to just be a a one-trick one trick horse here, a pony, or whatever the saying is. But I, again, uh, you see it all the time, pureed. It yes. It goes great with butter, with cream, with, you know, salt, pepper, stuff like that, obviously. Um, but I, I really enjoy it steamed too, like cubed or Ooh, like staked. Yeah. I just thought of this. I would love to cut it into, like, how I like the way you would cut rounds, thick rounds for like an eggplant parmesan. Mm. I would love to cut into that, steam it al dente, toss it in a little oil, and then sear it like sear a steak. It. Ooh, yeah. Salt, a little color. Meow. I like yeah. So this is uh, um, from the outside. This is all knobby and just like gnarled looking. Um, and, oh yeah. And you got to peel it and really sort of with a, a firm peeler. Um, what some of the problems I've had when I've done like a celery root potato mash 
Yep. Or mash or puree, which I, I think I, I think I was referring to the '90s, where for a while everyone everyone Classic. was doing short ribs. They would do like short ribs with a reduced stock on a celery root potato oh, puree. Yeah. Just getting the timing down of how long it takes for the Each. celery root to sort of boil versus the potato and what size chunks and whatnot. Right. And so I would just do so, if you're going to do that, make sure you have the timing down so one doesn't get waterlogged right. um, or underdone. I would cook them separately. Yeah, that's probably that's, I would too, and I've done it before together, and I always screw it up. Yeah, because they do cook. That's a great point, actually, because yeah. they will cook separately at different times. Um, also with celery root, I love uh, celery root remoulade, mm-hmm. which is sort of a French celery root sort of coleslaw, if okay. you will. Creamy. Or creamy, the shredded root, maybe a little bit of greens. It's um, a broth. Yeah, okay. and it's just like an excellent sort of accoutrement to some kind of a lunchtime-y, if you may have some charcuterie yeah. or something going on there. Refreshing, uh, crunchy. Exactly. Delicious. That sounds nice. Strongly recommend. Oh, I like that. Easy. And, I mean, all, the thing that's great about basically all of these that we're talking about, these root vegetables, is that they're all pretty affordable. Well, yeah, very affordable. Yeah. And, again, if you know how to make one, you probably know how to make all of them. Exactly. Also, also great with the celery root uh, remoulade. Oftentimes, apple is mixed in there. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we're so in it's the apple, 90s. We're celery. It's very, yeah, but it's like, <laughs> but it's also 1890s. Right. Like, totally. Back Ferdinand Plant and those guys back in France. Uh, so <laughs> strongly point. recommend that. Um, I hope that was a correct French chef reference. Uh, final one. Not a beet fan. Don't None like beets. We had, <gasps> Simone made beets last night. She roasted them. She put them in the salad. She was trying to get Marlon oh, to eat a yeah. beet. He didn't want to eat it. Turned into a whole thing at the table. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to eat it either. I love the flavor. I, I love the texture. Uh, I love the different types: the golden, the chioga, or the you know the candy cane ones. They yeah, call them. those are cold, pretty. hot, salty, spicy, sweet. You name it. I oh don't like God. the the sweet. I just yeah pickled. I could eat beets five days a week. Really? Oh, they're so good. But everyone has had this experience. This is you know nothing. But you know no, it, it does. Everyone remembers the first time they've eaten like a lot of red beets or something. And, you know, you go to the bathroom <laughs> and it's like when, you know, I remember being young and it happened and you know, I was like, oh boy, like I'm some, dying. Some, I'm, I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> and it's like, it, it's a very normal thing. Your mom should have warned you. <laughs> Someone should have. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, again, I'm four out of five is not bad. I love everything else. But for some reason about beets, and I feel like as a kid who didn't like vegetables, I've come a long way. You have. I'm a vegetable-forward sort of eater these days. But beets is just one of those things. There's something about the sweetness of them. I just don't like a sweet vegetable. Like that sweet mineraliness. Kind yeah, of. I just – like, and then the texture, I, I just can't – I've tried. And for some reason, it's like the one vegetable I can't embrace. Oh, and that's another one. Speak, and back to your point, you can kind of treat these all the same, right? Um, I think beet no, but beets is a bit of an outlier. Beet, like, so all ones. the other ones you would mash, all the other ones you would roast that take, take on a little color or steam. Beets you roast, you know, skin on in a like foil, whatever. You're gonna peel, then chop up. I don't know. Beets and are, you don't want any. I like. I don't like too much al dente. Like, no, you, you want them to. Be I don't tender. want that. Yeah, and you don't want the skin. I, I don't know. Some about beets. I think obviously people who love beets love beets. You, oh, you know what I do like actually. Which we get from Marlin, and then now I steal half of. Um, we always buy beet ginger like juice at okay. the market to try to get him some vegetables. Like, beet. oh, he'll drink that. It's like beet, ginger, apple. You know, that's right. Red beet. Red beet. So it looks just like a red. We just call it red juice cocktail. You know, and it's like I like to do that on the nights I'm not drinking. Okay. Half club soda, Ooh. half beet juice, and so you can actually make cocktails obviously with it. Also, beet juice upsets a lot of people's stomachs. It, really? Yeah, you remember the uh, wonderful Sue Lee? 
Yeah, I love Sule. She could not. I used to drink some. It was a mixture of. It was like beet ginger. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. The juice that I got somewhere, and she could not drink it. She said she would get like very nauseous and. So I think that's a common thing for raw beet juice to bother people. Huh. Well, I'm glad I don't have the problem. Your kid, he'll drink that. He'll drink that, Interesting. yeah. Interesting. He'll. He's, oh, you guys like beets. He's difficult with everything else. Well, that's what Simone figures. Like, you like beet juice, so you like beets. And he's yeah. like, tried, took one bite. And was beet just, juice yeah. is so much harder to consume than actual beets. Interesting. Yin um, and yang, you and I. <laughs> hey, man. It's all about, it's all about, pot. it's all, what's the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The whole for? circle, the yeah, whole pie yeah, or something yeah, like that? Exactly. All right. So anyways, it's January, people. Most parts of the country, it's cold and crappy out. Go buy some root vegetables. Try a new root vegetable tonight. If you never had rutabaga, go eat some rutabagas. Yeah. You know, it's all imagine, about the rutabaga. Yeah, turnips. Yeah, I imagine most people have sweet potatoes, but you know, try something new. You already know what you're doing. And especially nowadays, there's so many more different options out there. Even just in, you know, when I was younger, there no one. You had to go to a farmer's market and like know what you were looking for to find a purple sweet potato or you know one of those like white fleshed uh, sweet potatoes. But now they're kind of like in almost like all supermarkets, yeah. which is fantastic. And rutabagas too. If you look, they're just always they're just people just walk past them. And uh, I'm calling it. I, I'm going to single handedly try to make rutabagas popular. <laughs> Your starts right here. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Alex Beggs, and this is Cook, Mary, Kill. Cook! Refried beans. I made part of the basically chicken tinga tostada recipe this weekend, the refried bean part, and I will cook them forevermore. First, you cook chopped up bacon and onion together until everything's crispy good. Add two cans of black beans in a goopy can liquid, boil it, let the liquid cook down, and then smash it with a potato masher and have breakfast tacos all week. As Justin Bieber would say, yummy yum. Mary. I'd like to marry the Joan, which is the name of a drink at the Riddler, a champagne bar in New York and San Francisco. Well, the Joan is less of a drink and more of a pour. It's a glass of house wine poured all the way to the rim of the glass where it sort of shimmers and ripples until you sip it to a safe level. Some people see the glass of life as either half empty or half full, but when you drink the Joan, you might see life as double full, or maybe that's your vision losing focus. Either way, everything's looking up. And economically speaking, it's an amazing deal. It's $16 for the equivalent of two and a half glasses of wine, plus it's good wine from a fancy wine bar where you should also order a burger. I'll never divorce you, Joan. You can read more about it in the highly recommend column on bonappetit.com. Kill. Speaking of wine and undying love, this week I want to kill the wine tariff that might be implemented if the Trump administration's proposed 100% tax on imported European wines passes in Congress. And weirdly, this comes from trade disputes between aircraft companies? It's very confusing and stupid. You can read more about the details in pieces by Eric Asimov and Jenny Lefcourt in the New York Times, but the biggest takeaway is that some of the best wine in the world, hello, all of France, is about to disappear from stores or get very expensive. It could mean a $20 bottle is now $40. The New York Times said there'd be disastrous ripple effects. I only want the top of my very full glass of wine to ripple. But this isn't about my questionable personal life. It affects the people who grow and pick the grapes, the restaurants who serve, and yeah, profit from these wines, the whole damn industry. I didn't even get into the tariffs on other goods, like olive oil, cheese, and tinned fishes, which go really well with those wines. Gah, call your Congress people, scream and shout, kill this tariff. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Inamine. 
Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.